Good morning. Oh, for those of you who are friends with me on Facebook or some kind of social media, uh, may know that I've been in Alaska on vacation all week, and to prepare myself mentally, I've been referring to this as the 5 a.m. service. So it's wonderful to see so many of you at the 5 a.m. service. I look forward to the 7 a.m. one later. But uh, this morning, I did get a full night's rest, and this morning, we've got a really important passage as we continue through Mark's gospel. This is actually the center of the book, and it's the center of the story, because the story pivots, and we learn new information that changes what we just read in the first eight chapters, and it shapes what we read in the next eight-ish chapters. Um, so I'd invite you to just take a moment and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. It'll be on the screens and I'll read it. And as you do that, uh, I was thinking about the central question of this text. And the story that came to mind was I have a friend who, uh, she, within the last year, went on a blind date. She met someone through one of these social media apps or something, you know, some kind of dating app and decided to go meet this person and have dinner. And the topic of conversation that this guy chose, like right out of the gate, was he basically said, you know, I think I'm going to live forever. And he wasn't a Christian, and he didn't think he was Jesus. He thought technology would advance so quickly, uh, and the medical breakthroughs would come in place that, you know, he's 25 or something. By the time he gets to a dying age, that death will be solved by technology. Now, the numbers are not in his favor on that, and this is not good dating advice. This was their only date. So, and the interest, the first thing I said when I heard him say, I was like, so it sounds like his goal, because he spent the entire meal talking about his own perceived immortality, and I was like, well, if he had all this extra life, it seems like he would use it to talk about himself, and he would just have enough time to keep talking about uh, how, you know, long his life is, but, uh, I think he's, he's still going strong, but I think, you know, it's only been a year, so we'll see. But this is something that every human that's ever lived has to deal with. We have to answer this question that says, which path leads to life? Which path is it that leads to life? And, uh, there's, you could phrase it the other way. You could say, what's the best way to evade or sidestep, uh, death? Uh, and dying, which is something that uh, each of us wonders and each of us must answer at some point in our lives. So as we consider that, we'll turn to the text this morning, which is Mark 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your things, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray now that uh, you would open our eyes and hearts and minds to receive what you are saying to us this morning uh, as individuals and as a church through your word. We just pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would illuminate this text and bring it to life and apply it to our hearts. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So, this is a big deal in terms of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the first section we have here, which is 27 to 30, and we're going to gotta go by uh, the paragraph breaks here. 27 to 30, so far in Mark, we've seen a lot of miracles from Jesus. He's healing the sick, uh, he's curing diseases, he's delivering from demons, he's walking on water, and all of this is happening, and Mark, as a narrator, has not really explained why any of that's happening. In fact, as you're reading it, so I've been rereading it uh, on our uh, devotional schedule, and you kind of hit a point where you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. He, you know, he can cure people, and there's, there's a lot of this going on, but what are you getting at? And so Jesus turns to his disciples, and this is just after uh, feeding 4,000, uh, he's giving teaching, and then he heals a blind man. And as they're walking away from this, he turns to them and says, who do people say that I am? What do people think about this? You know, what's, what's their explanation for what's happening? And I think the reader at this point should be asking the same thing. Now, most of us know how the gospel ends, and so we have a good idea of who Jesus is as we're reading. But if you're reading this for the first time, you have to be asking yourself this same question, say, uh, who is Jesus? And so they make these guesses that recognize that they show, uh, that they recognize his significance. Uh, so they say, oh, you're John the Baptist, you know, you're somehow Elijah, you're one of the prophets. Uh, and all of these are guesses that say, I know there's something special, there's something unique, there's something divine even about what's happening here. But it's Peter who says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus follows up, charging his disciples not to tell anyone what Peter has just said. Now, there's a lot that can be said just about these three verses alone, but I want to call your attention to two things. First, as readers of Mark's gospel, this revelation that Jesus is the Christ makes sense out of everything that we've been reading in chapters 1 through 8. It makes sense now why he's been doing the things he's been doing and how he's been doing them. But it also makes sense of what's coming in the future chapters. So, and to zoom out even further, we remember, you know, always in the context of scriptures, that God created the world to be good. Humans rebelled and introduced sin and brokenness into the world. Yet all throughout God's story, he's shown a determined effort to redeem, renew, and restore his fallen creation. 
And so from the outset of his ministry, Jesus has been overturning evil as, as he encounters it. So whether it's demon possession, whether it's disease, whether it's false teaching, he encounters those things and changes them. And this is just a foretaste of what he's ultimately going to accomplish and what, uh, with his ministry. But we start to see the fruit of the kingdom of God anywhere that he goes. So the kingdom of God is creation as it's meant to be. And so creation is made right everywhere that Jesus goes. And so um, now we know that he's, he's on this ultimate mission to bring salvation uh, to God's people and to all of creation. But the second thing we might notice is that it's curious that he charges them not to tell anyone about this. Now, why would you ask them to guess if you didn't want them to know or to tell anyone? And he's charged people already, if you've been reading in Mark, uh, each time he does a healing, he says, no, don't tell anyone about this. And Mark usually bothers to tell us that uh, they didn't listen to that at all. They were so grateful for the healing, they were so excited about what happened that they go and tell everyone they can. But we have to, we have to wonder why this is the case. And so as we go through Mark's gospel, we see it, and it's what commentators call the messianic secret. For some reason, Jesus does not want the news that he's the Messiah getting out uh, too soon. And so there are a lot of different reasons offered for this, but if we consider um, what Jesus' ministry uh, was like, and just remember the very incidents that uh, uh, the popularity he's had already, he's retreating into nature to get away from the crowd. He has to preach uh, to a beach full of people from the bow of a boat so that he doesn't get crushed by the swarms of people. Just imagine if they got this news, what the crowd would be like. And more importantly, we'll see in the next passage that people had their own ideas about what the Messiah could and should be uh, and what the Messiah could and should be doing. So Jesus is not looking to build a popularity movement based on his title. He's seeking followers. And so as we prepare to move on, uh, I just want to call your attention to one thing, and this is kind of a reflection question, a point of application, if you will. But uh, each of us must in some way answer this question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And recognizing, so if you, you know, the apostles or the, his disciples said, well, you're Elijah, you're uh, a prophet, you're John the Baptist. Those are recognizing that Jesus is good, but they're not enough. So recognizing that Jesus is good or that he heals people or that he teaches or that he's capable of doing miracles is not enough. That's not enough uh, to Jesus. We have to know that he is the Christ. Now you might ask, what does it mean to be the Christ? Well, that's a great question because the next three verses tell us. So in 8.30 to 33, which I'll read again for you here, uh, he begins to tell them what it means, uh, 31 to 33, pardon me. Uh, he says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, perhaps one reason that Jesus didn't want everyone to know that he was the Messiah quite yet is illustrated here by Peter. 
As soon as he says that he's the Messiah, he starts talking about what it means to be the Messiah, and Peter rebukes him. Peter says, no, no, you're you're mistaken about this. You might be the Messiah, but you're wrong about what it means to be the Messiah. And so everyone has this preconceived notion of what the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do. And I talked about it um, a few sermons ago as Jesus was lamenting over Jerusalem, um, that he knew that they had these expectations that he would enter uh, Jerusalem, declare himself king, and chase the Romans out of Israel and would destroy Israel to the glory days. And so when he says he's the Messiah, 12 disciples start thinking that's what he means, that's what he'll be doing. And instead, he says four things in plain language, note, not in parable. He's been speaking in parable to conceal meaning and um, in some point, and then he'll explain it later to his disciples privately. But here he says it in plain language. He says four things that they didn't expect. He must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He will be killed, and he'll rise again. Now, if you're traveling with someone who says they're the Messiah, and you think the Messiah means you're going to go declare yourself king and restore the glory to Israel, this is not the game plan, right? I'm going to go suffer, and then I'm going to die, and I'm going to be rejected, by the way, by the leaders of your religion, uh, and then I'll rise again. So these four things to the disciples sound like he's denying being the, the Messiah, he just said, Peter just said, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And he said, that's right, don't tell anyone. And then he says what he's going to do, and they're like, no, no, that's not the Messiah. But it is the Messiah. So they think they've picked the winning horse, but Jesus tells them that he's going to die, uh, which they take to mean he'll be defeated. Right? They think they've picked someone who's going to be victorious, and then they hear him say, you're going to be defeated. But his victory comes in the resurrection, which he includes here as part of this. And so this doesn't sound like a victory plan that they had in mind. And so Peter pulls him aside to set him straight. Jesus rebukes uh, Peter, and the disciples still don't get it. So get this. Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, but then Jesus rebukes Peter. And you would now think, okay, Jesus is now the Messiah. He's told us what the Messiah is. You should be able to put two and two together. But they still don't get it. And if you don't believe me, keep reading Mark. Because in chapter 10, there are two incidents which indicate that they don't get it. There's bickering over who will get to sit at his left and right hand once he goes to Jerusalem. Um, and they, they bicker amongst each other and they ask Jesus to settle it. And he says, you don't get it. Because he does eventually take a crown that says king of the Jews. But who is on his left and right is not any of his disciples. They're thieves on the crosses next to him. And so they don't get what it means. And so this is um, this is important to get because you're going to see confusion from the disciples. And really, for the most part, they don't seem to get it all the way until Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit comes, it kind of all clicks. It comes into place. Um, but up until then, they still seem uh, so attached to what they already know. And then as we continue on, we've got um, just a few verses here at the end, in 8.34 all the way through 9.1. And calling the crowd to him uh, with his disciples, he said to them, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. 
And so the title of this sermon that Jesus makes demands, uh, it, it isn't exactly what's happening here. What is happening here is Jesus doesn't demand that you follow him, but he says, if, uh, he simply says, if anyone would come after me, then this is what it looks like. And so there are two ways to go. Jesus paints it as plainly as you can. There are two paths. First, if you follow Jesus, that's the first path that leads to life, but you have to be prepared to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. That's three things that uh, wouldn't be expected from following the Messiah, following the victor. Uh, this is not the path to victory or the path to life that most of us think about. But it says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, which means if you follow Jesus, you are no longer at the center of your own life. Jesus is at the center of your life. You deny yourself. You take up your cross, which uh, the cross, I think most of us know what the cross was used for, but I think there is a sense in which we've romanticized the cross uh, we use it in all kinds of imagery and things like this, but this is uh, like saying, take up your electric chair, take up your lethal injection needle. This is uh, an, an instrument used for torture and execution. Um, this is not um, a friendly saying, and as we know from Jesus, it's a quite literal saying, as many of his, all but one of his disciples ended up dying a martyr's death. So he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will keep it. Now, the other thing to remember here is that Jesus does not ask us to blindly follow after him. In fact, he gives us four reasons just in this text. Um, I realize now that this looks better in print, but he gives us four fours, which is F-O-U-R-F-O-R-S. He gives us, not 16, it's four fours. Because he says, number one, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Uh, and for uh, whoever would save his life will lose it. And for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? So he gives us these reasons and he says, look, there's there's really no other option. There's Jesus and there's everything else. And Jesus, he leads us down this path to life, but it's a path paved with um, suffering. And if you don't follow after Jesus, it's like trying to save your life, but he tells you that if you do that, you'll lose it. And if you're ashamed of Jesus, then when he returns, he'll be ashamed of you. And so there are an infinite number of paths in life. Some are comfortable, some are easy Some are luxurious, but the only one that leads to life and life in the fullest is paved by the suffering Savior. And if you serve a suffering master, what can you expect as a servant of a suffering master other than the possibility of suffering? And so most humans, not just Christians, most most people find a way of to avoid dealing with death. And so many of us will avoid following Jesus if suffering comes into play. Uh, but Jesus reminds us that there is no other option. There's no other source of life uh, in the truest sense. And so your life either gets its meaning from Jesus or it doesn't. He's painted a very binary landscape that only has the two pathways. Now, I've been 
reflecting on this, and I think it's it's really helpful to consider how this language sounds, not just to us as Christians, but to people that aren't Christians, and, and why this is, believe it or not, this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is good news. Jesus is giving us uh, the pathway to eternal life, and he's accomplishing it for us on the cross, and all he asks is that we we follow after him. Now, there's a... Um, a Christian author named Donald Miller, who, are you guys familiar with him? He had a really popular book, I don't know, 15 years ago, called Blue Like Jazz. Yeah, I see a couple of hands. Uh, and he had a book that followed up after that. And just in the introduction to his book, he's getting ready to talk about life. And in the introduction to his book, he just has this little one-paragraph story, and he says, uh, you know, imagine going to the movies and seeing a story about a guy who... Uh, you know, has two kids and a wife and they live in the suburbs and he decides that he really wants a Volvo. And so he decides that he's going to uh, save up his money and uh, he's, you know, the whole family's going to work together and they're going to save. And at the end of the movie, he accomplishes his goal and he gets a Volvo and he shows him driving off the parking lot testing the windshield wipers. So is that a good movie? Is that a movie you want to watch? He's like, for the most part, no. That's not the kind that you have to put on a record afterwards and think about life. He said, but that is the story that many of us give our lives to. And then we wonder why our lives don't have meaning. If, if it's a story that you wouldn't be interested in hearing, is it a story worth living? It's kind of the question he asks. And so I, I was thinking, I think about that all the time. And uh, there's this um, secular musician that I have listened to, and he's written this really compelling song that I have the lyrics here for. Uh, the song is called The Ballad of a Dying Man. And what he's done is he takes uh, kind of millennial culture, uh, of which he's a part, and fast-forwards it. He says, you know, what, is, what does our current lifestyle look like uh, from hindsight? And so these are the words he says. He kind of realizes the futility of modern living. He says, Naturally, the dying man wonders to himself, has his commentary been more lucid than anybody else? And had he successfully beaten back the rising tide of idiots, dilettantes, and fools on his watch while he was alive? Lord, just a little more time. Second verse. So says the dying man wants him in a box. Just think of all the overrated hacks running amok. And all of the pretentious, ignorant voices that will go unchecked. The homophobes, hipsters, and 1%. The false feminists he'd managed to detect. Oh, who will critique them once he's left? What he'd give for one more day to rate and analyze. The world made in his image as of yet to realize. What a mess to leave behind. Eventually, the dying man takes his final breath. But first, checks his news feed to see what he's about to miss. And it occurs to him a little late in the game, we leave as clueless as we came. For the rented heavens to the shadows in the cave will all be wrong someday. That's a sobering piece of music. And it's amazing to me, and then now that's another one. I've, I've read a couple of secular guys to you, but that's one where when I listen to this, I think, you're this close to the kingdom. I mean, you've seen the folly of the path that you're on. And you've seen where it leads, and it leads to nowhere. It's uh, vanity of vanities, as Ecclesiastes would say. Yet these, uh, so he just, he's commenting on someone who spends their life 
as kind of a social media warrior, the newsfeed warrior, who just comments on everything, feels superior to everything, and what does it accomplish? In the end, not that much. Yet, these are the stories that many of us give our lives to living. These are the, the narratives that we choose to live out. And as the title of our sermon series is Jesus offers something better. The story that Jesus invites you into, that he invites you to follow along with, is one of a broken world that God is determined to redeem and restore, and we are invited to be participants in that. And so when you consider that narrative with any other narrative, it can seem very shallow and fleeting. And so many of us, we cling to um, social media or our own opinions to find meaning and significance in life, but this is not the path that Jesus leads down. It's one of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following after him. And so I'd like to close today with a quote from Jim Elliott, who is a missionary who uh, was killed trying to evangelize in Ecuador in the early, mid-20th century. And he said it this way. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.